Matthew McCloskey was killed on December 28, 2014, and this is his mother's story. Mourning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Franklin Township, New Jersey is in the United States. In 2008, this county was on Money Magazine's top 100 places to live. Founded in 1745 as Eastern Precinct, Franklin Township was incorporated in 1798. It is unclear if this township was named for Benjamin Franklin or his illegitimate brother William Franklin, but after many publications on this debate, the Township Council has chosen the theory that it was indeed named for Benjamin Franklin. This county was very much a part of the Revolutionary War history and the scene of many raiding parties. General George Washington was attempted to be lured into battle here. However, Washington kept his troops at Chimney Rock until the British withdrew. In the 1830s, the Delaware and Rarity Canal was constructed connecting New York City and Philadelphia, leading to significant growth, seeing as much as 200,000 tons of goods shipped on barges using the canal by the 1860s, leading to significant growth in the township. There are many parks to visit in this county, including Colonial Park, offering picnicking, hiking, biking, golf and tennis to name a few of its activities. Ten Mile Run Greenway is a 684-acre greenway with many different places to see, including the Glass House, a home that has been renovated to be used as a natural habitat conference room, as well as over a hundred acres of grasslands and hundreds of acres of forest featuring map trails. This is a haven for outdoor enthusiasts. If you enjoy history, you can take a look and see where George Washington wrote his farewell address to the Revolutionary Army in 1783 while staying at the Rockingham State Historic Site or the Blackwell's Mills Canal House built in the 1830s to house the bridge tender who would open the swing bridge for boats to pass through and the Franklin Inn built in 1752 by Cornelius Van Leeu also known as Annie Van Leeu's house, and after being remodeled into a tavern and inn as the Franklin House Hotel. They are also proud of their many emergency services, including five all-volunteer fire departments and first aid and rescue swads, and a police force with a detective bureau, none of whom were able to save Matthew McCloskey's life. This is the story of how Matthew McCloskey died. Matthew's mother Michelle and I spoke at length about her son and how he was killed by a police officer who was driving recklessly. Reckless endangerment is described as when a person engages in conduct 
which creates substantial jeopardy of severe corporeal trauma to another person, or wanton disregard, doing anything, or in omitting to do anything that it is his duty to do, shows wanton or reckless disregard for the lives or safety of other persons. Michelle has her story and has an important message. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Okay. Good. What was Matthew like as a baby? As a baby, Matthew was, he was 10 pounds, 13 ounces. He was my fourth child, last child. Kind of took us all by surprise. But as a baby, he was just, he was kind of stubborn, but also very, um, just a beautiful child. And he was my youngest. So I kind of doted on him a little, you know, more, was more prepared to be a parent with him. My other children I had young and, you know, I was a little older with him. So, and I already had some experience. So I, I kind of spent a little more time with him as a baby, but he was just happy baby. When Matthew was brought home from the hospital, he was welcomed into a family that was brimming with activity. He was the fourth child born to his loving mother. His siblings were nine, six, and three when he was born. This household was always active and the kids were very close, enjoying playing together and spending time at each other's various sporting events. Matthew was a fun-loving, funny, happy little boy. His charming personality brought love and happiness to not only his siblings and family, but to just about everyone that met him. He was an engaging boy who knew how to make friends easily. His adorable face and compassionate disposition had him surrounded by friends in no time. Matthew was a boy who always seemed ready for anything. His understanding nature made it easy for him to keep friendships as he would never judge others, but instead embrace their differences and go with the flow, spending hours enjoying just about any type of play. And what was the relationship like with all of your children? Were, were, they, were they all close? Yes, they all were very close. And what was Matthew like as he grew? What did he like to do? He played football. He played basketball with his brother. He did baseball, love baseball. That was right before he passed. He was really into baseball. He wasn't, you know, necessarily that good at it, but he gave it all. He gave it his all and tried really hard and did the best he could. He was, he just kind of went with, with things like he never felt bad about himself. He just always made himself. It was like, it was almost as if he, in a weird way, it was like he was always in a hurry to do things because it's kind of like maybe he already knew something was going to happen, you know, spiritually. I don't know. It's just a thought I have because he was always kind of in a hurry and just, you know, I mean, at three years old, he took apart his skateboard and put it, he got a skateboard for Christmas and he took it all apart and put it all back together at three years old with his father's tools. And he, that's like, the, the, you know, he rode a bike at three years old. 
just always quick and early doing everything. So tell me, did he ever take anything apart that he wasn't supposed to? <laughs> not, not that I could think of. <laughs> not that I could think of, but he was always trying to, when his dad was doing things, he was always out there trying to do it with him and work with tools and, you know, learn. Just always, always inquisitive. And was he like that in school as well or more as a hands-on type of person? Yeah, he was like that in school, um, you know, after he passed, during, before he, when he was alive, you know, I would get reports from the teachers that, you know, just have a, like, he was just an overall sweet kid. He had this huge smile and just lit up the room and he, he just was friends with everybody and didn't judge anybody and just, it, it was, it's just, he just was really honestly just one of those kids that were amazing always wanted to know what I was doing, interested in what I was cooking. You know, he just was a really cool kid. <laughs> he was into, he loved Legos. He was into building things. He loved, he was into the Minecraft thing where you build communities and stuff. And th there, there was something special about him. Yep, he, he everybody loved Matt. This three-year-old boy was beyond coordinated for his age, able to head out bicycling just as easily as other toddlers of the same age are learning to ride a tricycle. He could also skateboard. Nothing would prevent him from keeping up with his older siblings, even when it meant doing things that were far beyond the average child's abilities. He was an extremely advanced young boy, loving any new experience and up for new challenges. Matthew was an extremely healthy child and loved sports. Although he was never the best athlete, one thing was clear. He was the most dedicated. You could see him out there on the field, giving it his all, sweating and cheering his teammates on. He played football for several years and then he tried baseball. He so loved the game and never complained when he spent much of the time on the bench being new to the sport. He was just happy to be part of the team encouraging the other players. His ever-smiling and happy self. Matthew's mother says how she would be more annoyed that he wasn't getting playtime than he was. But she never heard him whine. On the contrary, he was always ready for the next game. Matthew loved his mother and they had a very special mother and baby of the family bond. One that made Michelle happy every day. Looking at her son filled her heart with so much joy and love, knowing what a kind-hearted, sweet, and loving son she had. Sadly, this family began their fight for justice when only three days after Christmas, Matthew died. Tell me about the terrible moment you heard your son had been killed. I'm a registered nurse, so I was working, and so that day... Before um, this all happened, he asked me, as I was working, I was working a 12-hour shift, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and he asked me via text if he could sleep over his friend's house, and I was like, well, I was like, you know, you always go over there. He loved it over there because they, his friends, they had a big, they had a big family, and and so he asked to sleep over there. And so I said yes. 
that he could sleep over. So I thought that, so he went over there for the day. They went and had pizza. They went to the mall. They were using some of their gift cards because it was three days after Christmas. So he had all these gift cards that he wanted to get, get gifts from. So his friend's mom took him to the mall and they had a great day. They went and had pizza and everything. So then when I was at work, um, I got a phone call from his friend's stepmom crying, saying that Matthew was hit by a car. And that's all I knew. And I said, oh, my God, is he alive? And she said, yes, and, and then cried more. And so the fact that she said he was alive was like, oh, my God, thank God. And all I had to do, all I could do was I had to get to him. I was about 20 minutes away, and I was like, I just got to get to him. So I, um, then I was like shaking and I was like, oh my God. And so somebody, another nurse actually drove me to, which, to the spot where he was hit. And it was literally a block from my home. So he drove me there. And on the way, I think he was, uh, he used to be an EMT. So he was getting, um, reports of like a helicopter coming and, all this was going on as I'm driving there, and um, all, all I just thought about was, please let him be alive. Please let him be okay. Please, you know, and it was just it was the worst time in my life. It felt like it felt like hours, but it took 20 minutes. And then I got to the scene, and it was all blocked off. So I had to run through down the street to get to him. And then when I got there, uh, <laughs> Yeah, they wouldn't, the police officers would not let me near him. One of them actually kind of put their chest against me to push me back and say, no, you can't go. Um, there was police tape all around, and I'm screaming and trying to figure out what in the world's going on. I would have thought by now that they would have taken him to the hospital, but it was apparent that um, he was already passed. While Matthew's mother was standing there at the tragic scene, she knew part of her wanted to go to her son, be at his side. However, part of her was afraid of what she would see, and she didn't think she wanted that moment to be how she remembered her beloved son. Standing at the periphery, she could see Matthew lying under a tarp. Something was telling this grief-stricken mother not to run to him that she should go against her natural instinct and stay put. She is relieved that she followed her instincts that evening and held herself back. Instead of having a dreadful picture in her mind, her last image of her son is from before she left for work at the crack of dawn that day. She peeked in at Matthew and his best friend. They were lying side by side, asleep, head to head, looking angelic. She cherishes that last image and goes over it again and again, playing it on repeat, cherishing her son's angelic beauty and peace, his happiness. So after that, I literally, it felt like days that I was there, but I wasn't going to leave his, his, him. I was just pacing, screaming, trying to, what, what, you know, my son, my, my son, you know, it was, it was really awful. 
but it was like, it was about, I'm going to say three hours. Honestly, the time was just, I I don't remember exact, but I want to say three or four hours that he was out there on the ground. Um, and I kept saying, why is he still here? And no one was telling me anything. I was getting no information. I didn't, I don't even know. I didn't even know that it was a police officer that hit him until I believe later when I was home. Like it was, no one even told me. And why do you think that is that nobody was telling you that? I think that they were in protect the officer mode. Honestly, that's how I feel. I feel like it was all hands on deck. Let's, let's, like, they treated it as if it was, they treated it as if it was a murder. That it is, like, that as if a crime had occurred. And for him to be there that long, you know, that's how I feel. And I didn't really, I didn't even know who did it or what, like, what really happened until probably midnight. And this happened around 7. Actually, before, before I even, I didn't even know the coroner came. They had the, they had the um, fire department, the fire engines all, like, kind of moved and were blocking him. And the coroner came to pick him up. And I didn't even, I was standing there the entire time and I never saw the coroner come. I kept asking him, when are you going to take him? Where are you taking him? When, when, when? What's happening? And no one was telling me anything. And then maybe about, I mean, and my time frames are very off because I was in shock. Maybe about a half hour um, or an hour after they actually took him in the coroner van that I was told that he's not there anymore. So disrespectful. This distraught mother, unsure of what is happening, no one giving her information, keeping themselves at a distance. Keeping her at a distance. Her precious child lying there, and then not lying there anymore. The coroner taking his lifeless body away without so much as a sideways glance at his mother. All of these professionals in the various fields from medical responders, law enforcement and doctors, and no one thinking to inform the child's mother? This was a 10-year-old boy they took her son without telling her and giving absolutely no information during her wait. And not only no information, showing zero compassion or empathy or even basic human kindness. It amazes me how this huge group of professionals were gathered and no one there thought to look after the woman whose young child had died. I actually lost my voice. I was pacing. It was December, so it was, you know, cold. And the whole time, no one offered me a seat. No one offered me water. No one offered me anything, as a matter of fact. There was a fireman who walked past with a case of water to give out to all the officers and investigators and literally brushed my shoulder past me to give out the water to everyone else. And, I mean, I didn't think of it at the time. I didn't care about a water at the time or a seat. (laughs) But later, after the fact, I thought, wow, like, is that how you treat people who've been through a tragic situation 
But then there was one officer who came to the scene, of, I don't know, it seemed like of maybe a few hours later, and he said, what is going on here? He said, get her a chair, get her some water. And he grabbed a chair, had me sit down, um, gave me a water for me to drink, and knelt in front of me and literally cried to me and said, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he just, like, just looked at me in the, in, with the most kindest eyes. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that one officer. You know, honestly, I don't really know who told me. I just know that I went home, which, again, was only a block away. I went home, and I just started asking questions. There were so many people that came to my house. The mayor came to my house. The committee people came to my house. The chief of police came to my And they were all trying to talk to me, and I was just in such shock. And I think that that's when I found out what happened. I don't really recall exactly the moment someone told me, but I believe that that's because I was like, why are you here? And I think that that's what happened. One of the committee members told me. Tell me about the police officer that is responsible for the death of your son. So the police officer was new um, he just became, he was a junior officer, which is, I guess, how they do it. They start out as a junior officer and then, um, progress to a full-time officer, senior officer, I guess. And, um, so he was just became senior officer at the end of November. So like about a month before and 23 years old. So, you know, brand new. And he was, he, there was a call that came in right around shift change. So they all were, you know, getting their stuff together around seven o'clock at shift change. And a call came in of an unruly 12 year old. And so they all kind of got in their cars and started going to the, the home where this unruly 12 year old was, you know, the grandfather was having an issue with the, the child and called 911 for help. And they all started their way there in different directions. And on the way, now the, the police station is only maybe, I want to say, a mile or two from the site on the same road. So, and it, it's a 50-mile-an-hour road, but right after... The, where the incident happened, it turns into 40 miles an hour. And then I think 25 miles an hour after that. So he was doing 86 miles an hour on his way there, and he did not have his lights or sirens activated. So there was no warning of him coming. The parents of the boys drove my son to the house, to my house to get pajamas and stuff for the sleepover. And they were, the boys said, I'm going to race you home and we're going to beat you. The parents, so the parents were putting the baby in the seat and getting them together. And, um, the boys were like, we're going to, uh, we're going to race you home to the parents. Like, so they all started in a foot race to the house. And their house was across this street that was 50 miles an hour. And which is, 
literally a hundred feet from a school. Okay. The school's right there and the school where my son went. (laughs) And so they were on their way and the first boy crossed the road. Okay. Turned around, saw a car coming and Matthew was in the middle and the other, his best friend was behind, was, was behind. And then, so the older brother ran across safely turned around and tried to tell Matthew not to come, but he was, you know, he went anyway and started crossing the road and the officer hit him. And that, that was that. And he died instantly. His best friend saw it happen, feet away from him. The friend's parents were also seconds away, right there watching in horror as this police car was speeding way above the speed limit without his lights without his sirens. He came barreling along at the edge of a school zone, hitting a young child and killing him instantly. Wanton recklessness, wanton disregard, reckless endangerment, vehicular homicide. So many terms can be used to describe this tragedy. So many emergency personnel and so much police tape It was a sight that no mother should have to arrive upon. And then one year after this tragedy, Michelle ran into this officer by chance. Um, I was on my way to work, and there was a a, a Wawa convenience store up the street. I don't know if you're familiar with that store, but um, it's a little convenience store, and I was getting my coffee. I'd actually just started back to work, and it was a new job. And... I went into the store and I went to get a drink out of the refrigerator and he was standing there grabbing a drink as well. And he looked over at me and then looked back and looked away and I looked at him and then I went to pay, started walking out and he walked out as well. And I said, I knew, and I said to him, I said, I knew, and all I wanted to do was get out of there. I just wanted to get out of there. And it was kind of like in the corridor of the convenience store and where like he kind of holds the door open, you know, type of thing. And um, I said, I knew it was only a matter of time before I'd run into you. And he said, I'm sorry, who are you? He was like, excuse me, who are you? And I said, I'm Matthew's mother. And he was like, oh, sorry. And walked and then went back into the store. Michelle got a lawyer after meeting with the prosecutor. She got a lawyer because justice needed to be served. She got a lawyer after sitting down with the prosecutor and being told that because of the way the laws in the county are written, giving the power to choose what speeds police officers can go, when and if they put lights and sirens on being their choice, no matter how little time they have been on the force, or how young they are, their lack of experience, the severity of the call they are attending, or a myriad of other reasons. The prosecutor's hands were tied. And because of this, there was no clear-cut rule giving specific instruction on what course of disciplinary action could be given. Instead, The prosecutor told Matthew's mother very clearly, get a lawyer and sue in civil court. So this is what she did. 
Not because she thought this would give her any peace or calm, nor lessen her sadness or heartache or loss, but because it would just possibly help another family not have to go through what she had to live with. The indignity that the rules the police have to adhere to, well, basically are non-existent and so open to interpretation that they can basically do what they want. So she sued and then she settled because she could also see that this had to be put to bed for her other children but not before she was sure change would be implemented as part of her settlement. Just was like trying to just get through the grief and living in that town was really hard um, because there was a lot of negativeness. There was also a lot of wonderful people in that town that really embraced me and my son and my family and my kids and there was a lot of good people, but there was also a lot of negative negativity with it too, because they were, of course, you know, on the police side, it was kind of like that, like you're either on one side or another, but there was a lot of people that loved my son. And so we only lived there a short time, maybe a year. And so didn't know many people just started to get to know some people. Um, but Matthew, I'll tell you, he knew so many people knew him that I never even met before. And, um, so, but that's how that went. It was like a lot of really great people and then a lot of not so great people. The policies were very antiquated regarding turning lights and sirens on. The last time it was updated was like 86, I believe. It was very confusing um, to read. And so the one thing that the prosecutor did do was he changed the policies so that if you go over a certain amount of speed, you must put your lights and sirens on. Now he made this a county-wide policy instead of, because believe it or not, each municipality in New Jersey has their own policies regarding what to do with lights and sirens and when to activate them. I was trying to, I mean, there's COVID situation now, but we were in the middle of trying to get the law changed. And so it's uniform across the state of New Jersey that, you know, when there's an emergency, you put your lights and sirens on. When there's a need to go over the speed limit, you put your lights and sirens on. I believe the policy says 26 miles over the speed limit, you must put your lights and sirens on, which 26 miles, okay, 50, (laughs) it's basically covering them for whatever, uh, you know, whenever anything were to happen. So 26 miles over the speed limit, that's 76 miles he could have done without putting lights and sirens on. And so the, the, the policy that the prosecutor implemented was really just not even anything. It was great that he acknowledged that a policy needed to be made, but the policy still, in my mind, isn't safe for the community. You know, police officers have a job to do. I get it. There's reasons that they need to speed to to air to places. I get it. But put your lights and sirens on. It's really that simple. Because I'm telling you, if my son heard those sirens, if those boys heard those sirens and saw those lights, they would have never crossed that road. And that's the bottom line. I certainly never knew that lights and sirens were to the discretion of each police officer on each call and different in each municipality. 
In my ignorant mind, I assumed that if a police officer was going to speed, then the lights and sirens went on. Matthew's mother would really like every parent out there to look into their own community and find out what the laws are. And if you aren't happy with them, seriously consider trying to make changes. This family was out with their children and their son's best friend, Matthew. They are a reliable and responsible family. These kids are used to crossing the street in that area. What harm would it have done for that police car to have been visible with its lights and be able to be heard with its sirens? I can think of no damage that would have been done to the call this officer was responding to, but a lifetime of torment that could have been prevented for Matthew McCloskey's family. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. For the safety of the community, put your lights and sirens on. At least one of them. <laughs> the thing about not having clearly defined rules and protocols is when they aren't being followed, there are no clear consequences either. Had there been a clear policy in place, then this officer would have had clear sanctions imposed consequences that would not have been non-existent because in this case other officers and prosecutors who want good relationships with the police decided what would happen so tell me what happened uh, with the civil suit did you did you complete the civil suit what happened with that yes it was settled i settled it i chose to settle it because i just needed to move on um, I, I needed to do it for my sanity, for my family's sanity, and just to m have peace. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just settled on our own, and that was that. And in the uh, settlement, what was there any sort of restitution that the this particular police officer had to give back to the community, or any sort of sanctions Nothing. to him? Nothing. Nothing. What was part of the settlement is um, that they would, the town, they have like a, the town has a, um, like a town day, you know, where they celebrate the town for the day in September. And part of it was they were, they, they, you know, had a banner created in my son's memory and they were going to give me a little area there to promote because um, out of all this, there are a lot of positives that happened out of all this. Um, one of them is I started a nonprofit called Matthew's Miracles, and we help other families who've endured a tragic loss of a child. And so they allowed me, so that was part of the settlement, was that I could have them in my banner and have a spot to kind of promote Matthew's Miracles and continue Matthew's memory because that's kind of what I wanted most of all, honestly. And no parent, every parent wants to continue their, their they don't, never want their child to be forgotten. You moved from that town. Do you still go back and set up your booth? I do. I, I have. This year it was canceled because of COVID, but I will. And it's very hard to do. Um, I've seen the officer there, you know, every time I go pretty much. And um, it's very hard to do, but I do it because I need his memory to continue 
and people stop by. Some people with amazing stories of my son, and a lot of people walk by and ignore it. Um, we do a, com- a compassion award every year in the town, um, recognizing a police officer that went above and beyond to show compassion in the community because that, like I told you, the night of that, um, my son's death, how I was treated was just awful. And I felt like the officers need to learn to show compassion. And that one officer, he got the first award. And we've done it one other time after that. And we gave another officer an award. And we're going to be doing it every year um, in March. To, for on like That would be Matthew's birthday month. So, And it's been really, really great so far. And... So, I mean, I feel like there's good things that have come out of it, and I was so honored to give that, give those two officers, but especially the first one, that award, and have him recognized for, he literally went above and beyond to show me compassion that night and was the only one to do so. So he deserved it. <laughs> Matthew, believe it or not, he wanted to be a police officer when he grew up, when he grew where to grow up and he actually participated in a police camp the summer before he passed um, and he couldn't talk about it enough he loved it he got to be a helicopter and learn how to do CPR and turn the lights and sirens on in the vehicles and he couldn't talk about he loved it and so the ironicity is just amazing too so that's why part of me was like, you know what? And, you know, I respect all police. I, I do. I res- we need them. We need them. Um, they're the most important thing, you know, in a community for safety. And if me giving that award can show others, you know, the importance of, you know, can remind them to, to show compassion, to remind them of what happened that night and the importance of lights and sirens. That's all that that's what matters to me. And so that's why I decided to do that. What an incredible woman Michelle is. In the wake of her tragedy, she is out there fighting for everyone else's children, trying to save lives in her community, in her township, in her state, while still having the utmost respect for the police, even after living through a nightmare. Certainly, the officers receiving this award are proud to stand up and, in Matthew's name, accept an award from a mother whose child was killed by one of their brothers. Michelle is not bitter toward the police. She is only trying to spread a message that needs to be spread, continuing to show her own children the compassion she wishes would have been shown to her on that fateful evening and does so by honoring those that deserve to be commended. Teaching her children that the police are still to be treated with respect, that the police are the most important people in a community, upholding laws that are so important. Not taking away from the fact that their beloved brother was killed in a terrible circumstance, but instead teaching them to fight for what is right. Fight for the change you want to see fight to ensure others are safe, but still commend those that do it with grace and dignity, honor and compassion. 
I hope that many more police receive this award and that each and every officer endeavors to deserve it. I also hope that they all see the need for compassion in their chosen field of work. Michelle will continue her fight for justice until the necessary changes to the laws are to her satisfaction. I was, I really, I've implored uh, or I've met with a Republican and a Democrat state senator because we're trying to get the law passed because it's not just, didn't just happen to my son, this has happened throughout the state. Um, I know a, f- a few families that this has happened to, that if they just were to put their lights and sirens on, people would still be alive, children and adults. And so we were trying to, I, we met with two senators and we were trying to implore them to fix it and they were all about it. Um, and then, I don't know, I don't think it's a priority, I guess, for them. Um, and I haven't really heard much, but then there's COVID and, and all of that. So um, my plan is to get in contact with them again to try to get that moving again because I really feel like it's really such a simple thing. And if you could just, you know, make it a policy for the whole state just to put your lights and sirens on, that's it. When you're speeding, that's it. What upsets Matthew's mom the most is how it has come out that this officer saw three people standing in the road, yet still accelerated. And the cost to his highly poor choices and lack of good judgment was Matthew's life. So thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And you, you too. Appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this week. I have been getting such amazing feedback from the families that tell their stories here. This is all thanks to you, our listeners. I greatly appreciate your support and dedication to Mourning the Murdered. While producing the podcast, I need many tools to be able to bring you quality content each week. I now have an affiliate link with Amazon. And by simply clicking on the link before you make your Amazon purchases, you are helping to support my podcast. Once you click on the link, you will be redirected to your Amazon page, ordering as you normally would. There are no extra costs and no fees. Just go to my website, morningthemurderedpodcast.com, and click on the affiliate link. You can also, as always, support the podcast by sending a one-time PayPal contribution, or through Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month. All of the links can be found on morningthemurderedpodcast.com. So your help is only one click away. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one. And let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, 
but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.